Rolling meadows dotted with clover and columbine, or a vibrant, pulsing metropolis full of creative exchange. I'm not sure what utopia looks like for me. To some extent, we are all in pursuit of our own ideal environments. But often, if you're anything like me, you'll struggle to define what your own Shangri-La might look like. Is beauty or just serenity important? Or will collective purpose make for the kind of cooperative harmony of social support and artistic cross-fertilisation that makes us truly fulfilled? These are some of the themes we're mulling over on this episode of Confect Corner. We'll visit Charleston in Sussex, the dreamy bohemian home of painter Vanessa Bell, and explore how the house is continuing her legacy and acting as an incubator for artistic expression. We'll speak to Austrian entrepreneur and skincare pioneer Suzanne Kaufman about the raw beauty of the valley around her village of Betzau, where she has turned her family hotel into a wellness destination using the flora of the landscape. We'll speak to musician Tyson on the launch of her new album Pisces Problems and about the power of the women's collective Ladies Music Pub that has inspired and supported her ambitions to make it in the music industry. And finally, our essay takes a deep dive into the history of communities that have set out to build utopias when they've thrived and when they've failed. This is Confect Corner, and I'm your host, Sophie Grove. Growing up with the knowledge of what plants can do, chamomile is calming, arnica is anti-inflammatory. Here we are talking about really the traditional European medicine, which is there for a very, very long time. Life is hard and it's complicated and it's messy. And like we all go through loss in many different forms, whether that's physically losing people, whether that's physically mourning like place or relationships that come to an end. I feel like with musicians, we're quite obsessed with youth and we're quite used to people being really big when they're quite young. And I sometimes look at the pressure that people are under, you know, and they're like 22. And maybe if I'd carried on with music when I was 24, I would have done a lot more, so to speak, by now, but I couldn't handle it. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London, and I'm joined once more by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in the studio with me. Hello, trio of Confect Girls. Hello, London. <laughs> Hello, Marcella. Great to get you all together again. And as our regular listeners will know, we always like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks. Gillian. You've been on the road. Let's start with you. Yeah, I was in L.A., so I'm going to take you on a deep dive into the golden age of Hollywood. I discovered the Georgian, which is an amazing hotel on the Pacific Ocean in Santa Monica, which has been closed for many years. It was one of the iconic hotels of the 1930s with an illustrious Hollywood history. Charlie Chaplin stayed there. Clark Gable stayed there. And it's one of these um, places that sort of became reincarnated in many sad forms and then empty and void. And it's just been given a new lease of life. Quite stagey, quite retro, quite Wes Anderson. And yet I think that sort of you might allow that in Hollywood to bump up the volumes of the theatrics. You start with this Art Deco facade that is cerulean blue and it has all the gorgeous pothole details and all the architectural features that I adore in Art Deco. And then you enter through the lobby and you are almost on a film said, except for the fact that there is that wonderful echo of life of bars and people that you can enjoy 
a bit of Hollywood glamour that I think actually in L.A. is hard to find these days. It feels like you're being transported back to kind of the early years of Hollywood, that kind of F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of tender is the night feeling of something where it all began, which I kind of love. But it does also look almost larger than life. You do feel like you're in a set. I mean, I've only looked at the pictures, but it's very interesting. It is larger than life, but I think it's very hard to find a hotel in Los Angeles because the city is so spread out. You're either too far east or too far west. And I think, like myself, when I was on a business trip, it's almost impossible to leave Los Angeles without looking out on the Pacific Ocean. What's wonderful about this hotel is after you do all your work, maybe just one night there and have this rather surreal night where you relive the past and have cocktails and martinis facing the ocean, surrounded and framed by palm trees. Pretend you're in the movies. I'm sold. (laughs) Marcella, tell us what you've been up to. I was uh, once more in Genoa, and this time I have a ristorante for you with amazing Italian classic food, but also an incredible interior. It's an experience for itself. It's a bit hidden. It's close to Via Venti Settembre, one of the main big roads in the centre of Genoa. The entrance is hidden as well behind lush, dark plants, so it's quite dark inside, which makes it mysterious. Inside you see instantly two bold mosaic columns and fine, delicate chairs from the 60s. You see wooden walls, chandeliers, beautiful, and um, this makes it a very, very special place. And it's kind of like a stage for a late, elegant uh, lunch or dinner. Yeah, just try probably the homemade pasta and the freshly prepared pesto genovese directly in front of your table. Buon appetito. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, it's wonderful how some of these institutions haven't changed anything, even the furniture of these brasseries and also incredible tutorials. But this does sound like it's beautiful, every detail, every little mosaic, every corner. And I suppose, again, it just shows the importance of your surroundings, doesn't it? And Sophie, what do you have for us this month? Well, I've just come back from a very wild part of the world, the Costa de la Luz in Andalusia, which is an amazing stretch of coast. It's really very undeveloped, just at the mouth of the Mediterranean where the Atlantic waves start really making themselves known. And we stayed in a little beautiful house on a beach called Punta Paloma, which you can read about actually in the next issue of Confect, but I won't spoil that. But just the place itself was so wild. I felt like I was in East Africa or some desert island in my imagination. Hardly anyone around. Incredible, clean, beautiful waves. We just had this really wonderful moment of being you know, in Europe and not far from the airport, in fact, but then the sense of nature and feeling remote was very profound. And I gather you discovered a wonderful apparel to while away your time. The produce down there, and Cadiz is not very far, and there's an amazing wine-making scene there, but also Jerez, where they make sherry, is incredible. And so we were drinking Fino every night, which is something I'd never do in town here in London, and toasting you know, the sunset and having gambas a la plancha with this incredible dry, cold sherry. I think it's going to be a ritual every time we go to that part of the world now. It's no secret that Austria's Alpine region is one of the world's most picturesque destinations. But the Bregenzerwald is also rich in botanical ingredients and flora, 
which can have a transformative effect on our well-being. This is where wellness entrepreneur Suzanne Kaufman's eponymous business comes in. Her products are deeply connected to the surrounding landscape, celebrating regional plants and applying traditional natural techniques to create a new generation of sustainable skincare. With hero ingredients such as Edelweiss, whey or willow herb, this is a skincare brand rooted in the process of tapping into the natural resources of the region. Suzanne stopped by our studios a little earlier and I started by asking her to talk about her ancestral home and how nature impacts her work especially at this time of year. It's really beautiful at the moment in the Regenzerwald because the seasons are so different still. There is winter, spring, summer, autumn. And now is one of the best times of the year, actually, because you drive through or with your bike or you walk through the Regenzerwald and you just have this green. I can't describe it because it's this fresh green and you just have it once a year when it's the first grass for your eyes I think it's like healing because it's so amazing and also when you go now through the forest you see all the little buds you see the fresh green which is almost like a a very light green and this is just at the time now you can find this and then the combination with a crispy morning where you have a light fog and on the fields and it's a little bit wet and then you have this fresh air and the beautiful green of the forest and the blue sky, it's heaven. And I should say your hotel is based in a beautiful village called Bazao, which is known for its incredible wooden architecture, both sort of ancient but also quite progressive interpretation of some of the skills. Mm. So there's this vision of the river, the green rolling hills, but then also this beautiful architecture that speaks of the landscape. Can you describe a little bit about your hotel and how you have reinterpreted some of the traditions and brought them into the modern day? I really love this idea of combining tradition with very new ideas and being modern. And so this is actually what we do a lot in the Bregenzerwald. We say also we honor the old but welcoming the new. That's very typical for the Bregenzerwald. And when I overtook the hotel, it's almost 30 years ago, it was a lot of traditional architecture. And then with my brother together, I brought in a very modern aspects. And this is, I think, what also makes the Bregenzerwald so special as an alpine region. And also, you know, we have a lot of visitors from all over the world to just come for this special architecture. Tell me about growing up in Bregenzerwald and Bessau as a child, really connecting with nature, your grandmother, your mother. How did you engage with the flowers, the flora and fauna and use them in your daily life? I grew up in Bessau with a lot of friends, my family. And so when we were children, it was just coming home from school, having lunch and then just being outside, outdoor, whenever we could the forest was our playground and this was how I grew up and because my mom was very busy during summertime with the hotel so we were sent to a little hut up in the Alps which is still existing nowadays that the cows go up into the Alps and then there was a hut 
where we stayed with my grandmother, my cousins. There was no water, there was no electricity. So when we had to take a bath, my grandmother had to heat the water on the oven. And so this is where we spent four weeks. And during these four weeks, it was just being outside. And then, of course, also collecting a lot of plants, fruits, the one grandmother, she always wanted to get fresh arnica to make a tincture. So we were out for getting arnica. Then the other one was more into doing teas. So she wanted us to get a special plant for making a woman tea. Then we collected blueberries, which was the best because during collecting we just ate half of them. <laughs> and yeah, it was always very clear that everything we need comes from nature. So we are depending on nature. That was how I grew up. It's an amazing privilege, even though it sounds pretty kind of taxing at times, to spend such an incredible amount of time in that beautiful hut. And I wonder how that's rubbed off on your modern brand, because it's incredible to see this beautiful mountain pine bath I'm holding. It smells incredible. It really conjures the landscape, the spruce, that invigorating smell that you get in the Alps. How have you used the memories and also the knowledge of your family and applied it to the brand, Suzanne Kaufman. This growing up with the knowledge of what plants can do, chamomile is calming, arnica is anti-inflammatory. Here we are talking about really the traditional European medicine, which is there for a very, very long time. I grew up with this and still in the Bregenzerwald, if you go from house to house nowadays, even young women, you would find a cream they made out of marigold or an arnica tincture. So this is still a very traditional thing. And when I was asked to put together the idea of our cosmetic, it was very clear that everything we want to have in our products should come from nature, very close nature. And we use this great knowledge of plants and, of course, make them very efficient in a product. I mean, it's interesting to even imagine the kind of fields of clover and the beautiful columbines at this time of year. These flowers, that they're in my mind's eye. But for you, they also have a use. And I wondered, I mean, I saw marigold as an ingredient in your face products. Mm -hmm. Whether you could give us an insight into how certain alpine plants perform in skincare. I know you've got a new product which uses Edelweiss, which is a very iconic plant that grows so high in the alpine landscape. But what does it actually do? What is its medicinal potential? The Edelweiss is really a very special plant. It grows very high up in the alpine flora. So we talk here about, let's say, 2,000 meters. So why is this plant so robust? Because, of course, in winter there could be three, four meters snow on top of this little flower. Very cold, no sun, no light, nothing. And then in summer, as we know, if you are very high, you're very exposed to sun as well. And this little flower can really stand all these weather conditions. So that makes it very robust. If we use that, it makes them to protect the cells. So it's a very great ingredient for us. And I just love it. It's a nice little white flower, but it's not a flower, but 
you normally think of flour is it's it has like a little velvety texture. It's very special flour. And they're also protected, you know. You can't just grab enzians. I was going to say it is protected, mm -hmm. of course. And you can't just wander the hills anymore picking edelweiss, mm -mm. mm -mm. even though people once did. And I know mm -hmm. that for your product, which is a lash and brow serum, mm -hmm. you've cultivated mm -hmm. edelweiss to make sure that the wild edelweiss remains pristine and untampered with. What's that process like? And can you incorporate cultivated flowers into the economy of Bissau and Braganzewald? Yeah, that's very interesting, this question, because, as you said, it's protected uh, plants. So we, of course, make very sure we don't touch anything which is protected. And so there are cultivations like this Edelweiss. It's also grown on a high altitude in the Swiss Alps where they get out the ingredients. And what we also started doing now is that we harvest in the Bregenzer Wald like hay flowers. And then we make our own extract out of it. That's really great. I could talk to you for hours about this because I know there's so so many rich seams. But this whey bath, which I'm holding, is so interesting because whey is a byproduct of cheese. And I know that there's a lot of cheese production where you are. But you've managed to make this beautiful product. It's so rich and it smells incredible from something that was essentially being thrown away. But whey is a has been used in the wellness industry or as a cure for many years. Give me an insight into your particular use of whey, how it's been used in wellness. It started all with Cleopatra, actually. Uh, what we know that she was already having these whey baths. We know that she was a very beauty addict. So she was already in bathing in whey. And it has a very old tradition from inside and outside. So it's also very good to have whey drinks. It's a byproduct. And actually, if you think about it, it's the leftover when you make cheese. And when you make cheese, you have 10 liters of milk. You won't have 10 kilos of cheese. So 90% of the leftover of the milk is the whey. It was one of our first upcycled ingredients we ever used. And the whey has a lot of vitamins and minerals in it. This is why it's so healthy. And we use it in our baths, in the herbal whey bath, but also in the alkaline bath because it's so nourishing, balancing the skin. I think the myth is that Cleopatra was bathing in milk, but actually it was whey. <laughs> so we can just correct that now <laughs> for any historians of the wellness industry out there. But... Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us on Confect Corner and I would recommend anybody to have a dip in a whey bath or, in fact, go to Bessau and see this beautiful landscape. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sophie. And the first who has to come and visit me, that should be you. Thank you. That was Suzanne Kaufman speaking to me a little earlier. Marcella, is the connection to nature something that's very important for you when you're choosing your skincare regime? Indeed. They say you are what you eat. Maybe that applies to facial care too, I'm asking myself. Actually, I had a chance to experience some spa treatments uh, in Betzau, where Susanne Kaufmann's resort is placed and where she was grown up. And I must say to eat from the vegetable garden surrounding the hotel and experience the creams and facials from the surrounding nature is absolutely made for me. 
you just believe it. And when you're looking out of the window and you see those green mountains and the strong plants and the happy people. Sounds like a cure in itself, just going there. <laughs> Never mind the treatments. Now, Gillian, what do you think of what Suzanne was saying about how nature inspires her brand? And um, do you get this feeling when you head to the Alps? What is it about these mountain meadows, all sort of dotted with little white daisies and yellow buttercups and purple clovers? Weirdly, when I was little and we spent holidays in Switzerland, I would come back with pockets and pockets full of blossoms. And then I would steal my mother's cream and I would try and make my own cream. It's like, isn't it? It was just something very primal about the alchemy of these plants and knowing that there was something wondrous that could come out of them. I mean, obviously... They were quite a mishmash, but I would adore to talk to her and find out more about all the benefits of these beautiful natural flowers that I see every time I walk through mountains. And you, Sophie, you seemed to be enamoured with Suzanne's whey products. Is a whey bath going to become your latest beauty routine? Oh, it already is. But it's so interesting that this whey concept is so historic in a sense. And you know, we did a story a few issues ago in Confect about whey and how it used to be, you know, there were lots of cures in the mountains and in little spa resorts in the 20s and 30s where people go and steep themselves in whey as a restorative practice. And it was really before the word spa existed. It was a cure hotel. But it's so interesting that Suzanne's family ran one of these. I mean, she's fourth generation, but she really has brought the kind of way practice back into the modern kind of wellness industry. But it's the same principle, and I, it really intrigues me. But it's also incredibly beautiful experience because it's milky and her products smell amazing. So you don't have that sense of it being... <laughs> you don't feel like you're in a byproduct of cheese. Let's put it like that. There's a sense of fragrant, amazing alpine, kind of this incredible spruce and pine that you smell as well. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a convert, Gillian. <laughs> Next on our programme, we head to the south coast of England, to Sussex. The county is famed for its medieval heritage, but it is also rich in history a little closer to the present. One particular eclectic home continues the legacy of its artist inhabitants and their unconventional lifestyles. Convex contributor Sophie Monaghan-Coons tells us more. In the words of Virginia Woolf, one cannot think well, love well, sleep well if one has not dined well. And where better to dine well, followed by thinking, loving and sleeping well, than Charleston in Sussex? Let's begin where Wolf would have wanted us to, in the dining room. So this room was decorated in sort of 1939, in that period of calm before the actual conflict started. So it's got that sort of very dark black ground with these chevrons and diamonds on top. So it's kind of quite regimental, quite sort of military looking. But at the same time, there's a wonderful softness. You can see the lime coming, the chalk coming through the paint. And there's a wonderful focus on this beautiful painted dining table by Vanessa Bell. The light above it with another Quentin Bell lampshade on top. And that sort of focuses the light and focuses the attention on the actual uh, the table and the dining room. And it's a round table, so we sort of, as an organisation, we sort of take our ethos from the idea of there not being any sort of hierarchy, there's no head of the table, no sort of everybody's got this equal space at the table to contribute. 
Darren Clark is the Head of Collections, Research and Exhibitions at Charleston. Today, he's giving me a tour of the house while it's closed to the public. Charleston is where some of the 20th century's most progressive artists and writers came together. They're often referred to as the Bloomsbury Group. Vanessa Bell, the sister of Virginia Woolf, first rented the farmhouse in 1916 with fellow artist and her lover, Duncan Grant, and the writer and Grant's other lover, David Garnett. Grant and Garnett were conscientious objectors and faced with the choice between going to prison and finding work on a farm, they chose the latter. Bell and Grant stayed here until their deaths in 1961 and 1978, respectively. Dorothy Parker said of the Bloomsbury Group, they lived in squares, painted in circles and loved in triangles. In many ways, Charleston encapsulates how its inhabitants tried to imagine an alternative society. I think it offers people an idea of a different way of living, one which gives you sort of freedoms to pursue what you want to pursue, to surround yourself with sort of art and design, to create your own space that is reflective of your own personality and your tastes, not sort of caring what everybody else thinks, of sort of pursuing the love affairs with the people that you want to love and the beliefs that you sort of hold dear. So that idea of rejecting this sort of ridiculous war in the First World War and pursuing the sort of negotiating this sort of new idea of domestic space, both in the decoration but also in who you were loving. So Duncan Grant was here. He was David Garnett's lover, but also Vanessa Bell's lover, so he was sort of in the middle. And it was sort of trying out new ways of living. Often there were jealousies and arguments and all that sort of thing, but they were still sort of giving it a go and trying things out and having that bravery to experiment. Artistic experimentation is everywhere throughout the house. There are upholstered chairs in fabrics designed by Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. Close a door and you'll discover a motif on the back of it or painted onto the side of a bath. So this room was the writing room for Clive Bell. So he was Vanessa Bell's husband. He was quite an important art historian in the early part of the 20th century. And in later years, he wrote his memoirs here and different articles for magazines. And it's full of his books, all sorts of different art books and things. But back in 1916, when the artists moved here, this was like the first room that they decorated. So Vanessa Bell painted these little flowers underneath the window, these very delicate blooms sort of suspended in these glasses, stem glasses. And then on the back of the door, Duncan Grant painted another still life. This time some artificial flowers from the Omega workshops sitting in a little squiggly jug and that's sitting on the windowsill of the dining room next door overlooking the barns across the lane. And there would have been a similar panel underneath but that was destroyed by Vanessa Bell's two sons when they were reenacting the sack of Rome. So the design that you see now wasn't done by Duncan Grant until the late 1950s. So you sort of get this progression of his style over those years. Charleston feels unique in its mix of the everyday and the extraordinary. The paraphernalia of daily life is littered amongst irreplaceable artworks. And also in this room we've got the original plaster bust of Virginia Woolf that Stephen Tomlin made in the early 1930s. And she was a very reluctant sitter, she hated sort of being looked at. And he did several sessions with her but in the end she got so exasperated she called a halt to it. So technically it's unfinished but it feels very lifelike, I think it's unfinished quality. Gives it a sort of immediacy to it and, uh, and this is the original plaster that later was cast for the ones that are in the National Portrait Gallery and at Monk's house, her former home, sort of come from this one. 
The house feels like a living gallery, filled to the brim with artworks and sculptures, every surface turned into a blank canvas ready to be covered, and offering the visitors the chance to wander among them. I think when you visit, you see it as a whole and you think of it as on one plane, but in each room there are these different layers of history building up and you can see how their styles are developing over the years and how they're different influences and how they return to influences from the past in later work. It's sort of all there, all sort of waiting to be unpicked. But Charleston is not just a memorial to the past. It now includes a gallery space, currently playing home to the ceramic artist, Betty Woodman, and painter and photographer, George Woodman. So Betty and her husband, George Woodman, were both American artists. And they had a house in Italy where they would go to and create work. And there was these wonderful sort of similarities between their work and their lives there that we felt had echoes to life at Charleston. So there's, in the gallery at the moment, we have an exhibition of both their works. Whether it's through exhibitions, which bring together the work of historical and contemporary artists, or the literary festivals held at Charleston, the values of the Bloomsbury Group live on in the building and its new uses, something which is only possible because of how forward-thinking they were. You can see actually this is a very contemporary group that lived a long time ago. So they sort of have these wonderful connections to the now and it feels still fresh and exciting. We sort of return to it and reinterpret it and bring it back again. But their core values and their core activity are always there. A report there by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. You're listening to Confect Corner. Galdern was a force to be reckoned with. Founded by Live Little in 2015, it was a platform offering perspectives from marginalised backgrounds rarely heard in the media, fastly growing from an online success to printing annual issues and collaborating with cultural powerhouses such as the Victoria and Albert Museum. When Galdam closed its doors, Liv decided to pursue other projects, including a writing course at Goldsmith, which led her to write her debut novel. Rosewater follows Elsie, a fiercely independent poet in South London, who is struggling with feelings of belonging, all the while pursuing her dream career. The story has clearly left a mark with readers around the world, even getting picked up by the singer John Legend for his new book imprint, Get Lifted, in the United States. Complex contributor Steph Chungu caught up with Liv to talk about her book, and Liv started by reading one of the poems featured in the novel, Home, by Kai Isaiah Jamal. I guess you ask me where home is, and I say here, or here, as if I don't know as if I ain't been shown a way home for a while. Maybe it's wherever I can feel the bile in my stomach settle, or any room that's got a kettle and moment to pause. Lost, cos I know a little better. I guess home's wherever. I guess I find it wherever it is there to find. Mine. No place fixed in every place I've missed. Any girl I've kissed at least twice. Home, sometimes wherever I have left a tear or the ear of any shoulder that bumps with mine. Whilst we are both trying to find the platform, a platform, a rave from back in the day, 
the left side of a face, curved like a hammock and setting suns, setting suns, anywhere you can run to with your eyes tightly closed, home. I actually don't know, to be honest. If a tree falls in a forest and nobody hears, does it mean she's been kicked from home? Or does it just mean you've outgrown the woods? I think by the time I sat down to write Rosewater, I was literally bursting with creative ideas and I really, really wanted to write and start to fuel my own kind of creative practice as someone who had like held space for other people to do that for mm. a large part of my career. So I was really ready. So I just had fun with it. I enjoyed it. It was like an amazing kind of joyous, exciting space for me to have and a space that I really needed. And I love the world of fiction and I'm now working on like film and kind of telly projects and this is the space that I feel fills me up the most and that I feel the most kind of excited by so it's been a joy it's been a privilege really I think. It's billed as a love story so mm. why did you want to write a love story first as your big debut into the writing world? Yeah I love love. Um, <laughs> I'm a romantic, but I also like love hard when it comes to my friendships and my family. And like those relationships are just as deep and as important to me as kind of romantic love. So as much as it is a love story and Elsie's going on her own journey, it also looks at all of these different facets and different ways that love can show up in your life. And that's really important, you know, like she's got Maggie, she's got Juliet, she's got her grandma, like all of these different people that really hold space for her even if she's not able to see it. And I think for me, my approach with all of my writing projects is always to write the thing that I want to see, either that I want to watch or that I want to read, and this is the book that I wanted to read. And it's so rooted in South London and like places and people that mean a lot to me. It really is a book that's kind of come from my heart, and I think there's a lot of women and places and things that mean a lot to me that have inspired me in the book. So it really... It made sense, I think, that my first book was a love story. You actually have uh, slightly answered my question. I was going to ask about why was it set in South London? Mm. Um, what inspired you to be like, this is going to take place here? So South London is really important to me. It's also got like a really rich, strong kind of Caribbean history. I'm half Guyanese, half Jamaican. It's the place that my mum grew up. She grew up in um, like a block in Stockwell. My dad drove the buses in South East London for like almost 30 years. Like it's a place that means a lot to me. It's a place where he landed when he kind of first came and place that my grandma when she came when she was in her 20s back in the day. That was where a lot of kind of Caribbean people would gather and live in houses together and it's got a lot of culture, it's rich. And there's a lot of writers and music and things that come from that space. A lot of food, the markets, all of it. Let's delve into the story. Your mm. main character, Elsie, we first meet her as she's being evicted. It was quite unsettling to read her anxiety through mm. that moment and like watching her trying to process the whole scenario. Why did you want to start off Elsie's story like that? I wanted people to feel the level of discomfort that she was feeling. I wanted people to feel like they were, like, literally in it with her in the moment, the anxiety, the panic, the stress. It's also why Kalela's music's in there and, like, that kind of, like, mirrors the glass breaking and all of those kind of sounds, like, mirrors the stress of her situation. I think it's really impactful, especially with shows like, I don't know, for example, like, I Hate Susie or This Is Going To Hurt, where, like, you're at the peak of just, like, stress and you're really in it with them and there's not really a moment or a chance for you to, like, breathe or to pause because Elsie in this moment doesn't have a chance to breathe or to pause. So I wanted the reader to feel like they were in it with her, you know? And it's a story that's told through her eyes, through her experience, so I want you to feel 
like you are mapping that kind of emotional journey that she's having and she is in a huge amount of discomfort she's in a huge amount of pain when we first meet her and fear those feelings of panic and anxiety are feelings that I think all of us will have felt in some capacity or some context in our lives it's a universal kind of feeling that sense that you just can't breathe because you're so stressed you know that's definitely a feeling that I've had before what was it like working with Kai and making Elsie's poetry? It was amazing. They were like a really good friend and I'd written the book and I had like a few places where I knew that I wanted poems to sit. I think it was three and then maybe we ended up with four poems. And I knew what I wanted them to be about and I knew what I wanted them to evoke and I knew some of the detail that I wanted to come across in them. But I did not have the skills as a poet to kind of bring those to life. And it wasn't even just that. It was like when I wrote Elsie, I literally pictured Kai's voice. It was Kai's voice. That was the only voice. Because Kai has this sexiness. They have this ability to make you feel things so deeply. They have just like a way to just emote. I've watched so many of Kai's poetry videos or read so many things and just been so moved. And I think that's such a skill. And so it was a no-brainer. So I sent Kai the work and Kai loved it and was like, of course. And then we went back and forth on some of the poems. And when they sent me the one about Pepperpot, I was so moved because it was like, you've been able to capture the significance of this dish, what it means, how it makes people feel, the cultural significance of it, how home can kind of be represented through something as simple as like a rich, meaty stew, you know? I wanted to talk about Elsie's character development. She was just about trying to find a place in the world and her relationships like compared to her grandma and her parents seeing her how she was struggling and then coming back to Juliet and finding her feet and having stability and then obviously the main um, turning in the book where she's starting to get things right for her but then in life outside of that it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Did you have any reflections writing Elsie's story at that time? Life is hard and it's complicated and it's messy and like we all go through loss in many different forms whether that's physically losing people whether that's physically mourning like place or relationships that come to an end like she's going through things and that's the reality of the messiness of life and so it's like as much as we all probably you know want to shake her at some point and say come on girl like it's here through understanding like the mapping like you were talking about with her grandma and her mum and like the different ways in which different people show up you're able to understand why she might not find it so easy to like be vulnerable to accept help to see the things that are in front of her because she's got so much other stuff that life keeps just throwing at her That was Liv Little speaking to Steph Chungu. Rosewater is published by Dialogue Books and is out now. You're listening to Convict Corner. As the daughter of Massive Attack producer Cameron McVeigh and Swedish singer Nina Cherry, as well as a sister to the rising pop star Mabel, one might assume that Tyson McVeigh's path to music was a straightforward one. This, however, wasn't the case. After drifting in and out of music in her 20s, it wasn't until her 2019 debut solo release, Pisces Problems, that she firmly established herself as a rising star on the alternative R&B scene. Since then, Tyson has released a string of duets and collaborations that showcase her lush, soulful vocals. She's toured Europe and continues to craft her unique sound that is as sophisticated as it is intimate. Convex contributor Paige Reynolds sat down with Tyson to talk about her career so far, her deep love of collaboration, and whether a family tour will ever be on the cards. So I was born in London, and then I think we quite quickly moved to Sweden. I guess I would have been about two. And we went to my grandparents' house in the South Sweden that we still have. And then my parents went on tour and... 
they basically stayed away a lot longer than they were meant to. So there was this whole period of time where we we ran out of money and we didn't know basically where they were. (laughs) And then from there, I came back to London, then went to New York, and then we moved to Spain until I was eight. Maybe by about six or seven, I started to realise nobody else's house is like ours. Nice, nice, nice try, you're a nice guy and nice to me so I get right, you're bright eyes. I've always sung and always knew that that was a sort of core part of who I am and I think because so many people in my family do music, I've decided probably around when I was about 16 that that's not what I was going to do. Although I loved singing and I would write songs and I actually sang a bit with my parents, like toured a bit between the ages of 16 and 19 which I loved, but I was like, this isn't what I'm going to do. I kind of need to carve my own path. So I decided to do sociology and social anthropology at university. I finished and was kind of quite lost. I was working in a restaurant in London, had nowhere to live, was staying with my boyfriend at the time, and was just like, I think I need to do music. That's what I need to do. And that was probably the first time that I consciously was like, let me find my own little pond, my own little area of music and do it my way. I feel like Joy Orbison maybe was the first maybe big time producer that his manager approached me like do you want to do a session which was a little bit scary in the beginning. And it was nice with a lot, you know, with a lot of these people, like you end up in one place with one person and then they kind of invite other people in. I love working with Dean Blunt. He was like, oh, I've got a studio in Hackney between this date and this date, come through whenever. And he kind of said that to everyone that he might want to work with. So I think in that way, you kind of end up in a space and then something happens. So that's how I met Cobby Say was at one of those sessions. And then I met Mansa Brown through Joy Orbison. And then they all end up kind of being really important collaborations. But I think most of the time, when other people get involved, it ends up a bit better. It's not always easy, but I like the collective process. With Pisces Problems, it was me and Oscar Scheller, who were really, really old friends. And it was the first music that I'd made kind of solo. I was really nervous. I'd just taken a big break from music. Not nervous, but, like, I wasn't open yet to the process and comfortable. And so he really, like, cradled me through it. And I think we just wrote everything. Like, we would just sit and both just, like, hum and write loads of words. And I've known him since he was six and we've got the same birthday. We're basically, like, an extension of the same person. But that's a very unique process. I was very happy to have a body of work. I think also I had actually been working for quite a few years then on, like, getting this stuff out. So I I had quite defined goals, which were to, like, put myself on the map and be like, you know, this is what I 100% want to do. After kind of touring and throwing for years, I'm like, I'm a solo artist. This is my project. It's the beginning. Marking out a little space, and I feel like the project did that really well. And then working with Ladies Music Pub as my label and also my management, it just all, like, came together so well. My long-term plan, which hopefully isn't too far away, is to have a band, even if it's just two people or one other person even. And then I was thinking for a while, like, I enjoy just the singing part. I want to 
just be able to kick back and do what I'm good at and just sing, have people playing. But I found touring with Sudan Archives so inspiring on many levels and how she navigates things that I find really hard about being a solo woman artist, basically, but also how she's kind of started with a similar, quite small setup. And then now she's like, she's singing, she's dancing, she's playing violin, she's playing the sampler. I was like, actually, why am I boxing myself into either play or sing? And after that tour, I was kind of like, I think I want to get more machines and do more singing and more dancing. Obviously not just like her, but like, it really made me think, like, what can I do to make this more of a show? There was a show, it must have been in 2021 when I was playing a lot, where my sister Mabel had a big show and I had quite an important show, so my parents split up and did one each. And I'm like, this is the life, like, you know, we're all doing bits. And I thought that was quite exciting. My dad always just, like, closes his eyes and sings along to every word. It's very sweet. And my mum mm. just cries. I played at Village Underground for uh, Pitchfork and my sample almost fell off the thing, so my dad interrupted me mid-song and was like, Tyson, because my eyes were shut. Tyson, your sampler's going to fall off. I was like, oh, my God. We did a family show of sorts at the Barbican. That was a tribute to my granddad, but that was with Ethnic Heritage Ensemble. So that was a very beautiful jazz show. And then I think if we were going to do, like, me and my mum and, oh, my God, people would absolutely love it, but no, it's never, ever going to happen. Just when I felt like giving up, you turn around and lift me up. I've had this weird stress recently where I'm like, it's now or never. My sister was talking about someone recently being like, yeah, well, if they were going to be big by now, they would have done it. And they were in their 20s. And I think because I'm 34, I'm a bit like, if this doesn't work now, like, I don't get another chance. And then I'm like, that's so weird. Like, why why do I feel like that? And I'm like, nobody wants to see, like, a washed-up 35-year-old. I'm like, you're 35. Like, <laughs> just chill. <laughs> why are you being weird? But I think, especially when it comes to artists and creative people, but I think musicians mainly, because I feel like, you know, you can be an actor... It's easier, mainly if you're a man, like in your 40s, you know, for the first time. But I feel like with musicians, we're quite obsessed with youth and we're quite used to people being really big when they're quite young. And I sometimes look at the pressure that people are under, you know, and they're like 22. And maybe if I'd carried on with music when I was 24, I would have done a lot more, so to speak, by now. But I couldn't handle it emotionally. I wasn't ready, basically, and I know that I would have crashed and burned even worse later down the line I needed to just stop and figure out who I am a bit as a person before I could have done it and that's just how it is that's how it works and now I'm absolutely able to do this <laughs> and you can read our full interview with Tyson in the latest issue of Confect magazine which is out now And finally, it's time for this month's essay. Anna Neimer is a historian and an author whose books include The Utopians, Six Attempts to Build the Perfect Society. In this episode, she looks at the concept of utopia and alternative lifestyles and ponders how, by looking at communities pioneering new ways of living, we can be reminded that we do have a choice in how we live. Frustration with society, with the status quo, always seems to lead to a handful of familiar responses. Protest, civil disobedience, in extremist violent revolution. 
But throughout history, small, determined and highly idealistic minorities have chosen a different tack. These men and women set out to create a complete alternative to the societies in which they lived. These communities, often called practical utopias, crop up in waves. Mostly they arrive as a response to periods of intense social, cultural and political dislocation. In the wake of the US Declaration of Independence from Great Britain, hundreds of secular and religious communities established themselves across America. One of my favorites for its sheer oddity is the Aneda community in New York State, begun by sex-obsessed maverick preacher John Humphrey Noyes. He believed that Jesus had already returned to earth, freed everyone from sin, and made it possible to build God's kingdom in the here and now. His vision of God's kingdom was underpinned by a system of complex marriage, whereby any member of his community could have sex with any other. It was a demonstration of how baroque visions of the perfect society can become when given free reign. Another utopian wave rose in the 1920s and 1930s, when the globe was reeling from an influenza pandemic and the First World War, and nations were gearing up for another conflict. In the Amazon, pioneer of automobile mass production, Henry Ford, created an entire new city, Fordlandia, to demonstrate the beauty of a society governed solely by paternalistic industry. Following very different ideals, a young writer from Tokyo led a motley collection of intellectuals and artists down to the south of Japan to start Atatashiki Mura, the new village, in a remote spot in the mountains. Mushikunyoji Sanitsu's vision of the new good life involved group decision-making and six hours a day of community work, cooking, cleaning, growing rice and raising chickens, with the rest of participants' time spent writing, painting and swimming in the river. What are utopias? Places which, by definition, are impossible to build successfully, or good places that can actually be created. When I was a child, visiting the tiny eco-commune in southwest England that my grandfather set up, I inclined towards a former view. Extreme cold seemed always to envelop the area of Devon where he and his fellow communards lived. The food was terrible, the residents squabbled, and none of them seemed particularly happy. I could not see how their attempts to demonstrate the viability of a carbon-neutral existence could be useful to anyone. Older now, and with several years of research behind me, I have had a change of heart. The place created by my grandfather, along with every other alternative community throughout history, may not be successful in the sense of lasting a long time or finding perfect solutions to the question of how to live. These communities may drift into absurd or unsavoury territory, but they also generate openings in the fabric of society, reminding people that it's possible to recast the way we choose to live. It's easy to think that we live in a post-utopian age, the growing threat of ecological catastrophe can seem too great to be combated by small-scale endeavours. Individual consumerism can seem too deeply ingrained for people to live their lives in service of big, impersonal dreams. But utopianism is still happening. In the mountains of Asturias, in northern Spain, 60 Spanish, French, Danish and German men and women live in the remote commune of Mata Venero, where they grow their own food, build their own houses, consume as little as they can, and live a so-called rainbow existence where all are considered equal. On an island in the Baltic Sea, the eco-villages of Sundbyn aimed to model a circular system for food and energy production. This community was chosen as a pilot region by the Swedish government to help the country move towards using only renewable energy sources by 2040. There are larger-scale initiatives too. In Toyosato in Japan, Several hundred people aimed to demonstrate a fulfilling life built on sustainable farming, egalitarian cooperation and few possessions. 
It's one of more than 70 low-impact communities that form the Yamagishi movement, which stretches to South Korea, Thailand, Australia and Switzerland. Today's utopians are more guarded in their ambition. They seem less prone to writing grand manifestos. They focus on the practical question of how to share tools, cars, living space and childcare, how to balance communal bank accounts, how to manage public relations. But they're still created with the intention of building real-life models of the good place, which they hope will inspire the world at large. In an era rife with social, political and ecological challenges, there's nothing more heartening than knowing that people are continuing to choose a harder route, devoting themselves to devising and testing alternative ways of living. They are a reminder that we do not need to accept current definitions of what is possible. We can ask for better and make better happen. Utopians might be an odd-looking, underwashed and eccentric species, but they infuse the world with new optimistic energy. That was historian Anna Nimer. Gillian, do you ever get the desire for utopia, for changing your lifestyle? Gosh, well, I'm always fascinated by the idea of utopia. But going through literature and films, utopian stories never end up turning out well. They always seem to morph into something dark or something disturbing. But I think my utopia is um, really just almost surrounds a way of living in a more solitary way of what makes me happy, finding the elements of life that give me joy, that calm me down, that enrich me, and then inviting my friends to join in it. But nothing structured. It's a very gentle utopia, but that I got to just trust my instincts to. It's nothing organized or nothing structured. Marcella, dare I ask, what would your alternative lifestyle be? I can't answer that in two sentences, but I have um, a nice anecdote. When I was uh, the Fashion Week in Milan, I met a long-time experienced limousine driver wearing a dark suit and sunglasses, very cool looking. And he told me that when he retires, he wants to join the Amish community <laughs> and live like this from then on. So I can just I, imagine him trading you know, his limo for a little pony and trap. <laughs> I could hardly believe it. And was something between surprised, impressed and disbelieving. But actually, I think you can't just change the way you live, like from one moment to the other, especially in a certain age. But then I thought it's so brave from him to even try it, you know. Imagine a driver from Milan going to an Amish life. Wow. <laughs> Complimenty. <laughs> yes. And Sophie, how about you? Well, it's something I talk about a lot. In fact, I was having a big discussion at a party over the weekend with some friends saying, let's go and let's take this community in London and go somewhere like the south of Spain and create something. But actually, I think what I love is the metropolis and a big city and the energy and the diversity and the kind of momentum of a city that I don't know whether you can really just do that. You can't have it all in a sense. Conversely, I went to the city Radiers in Marseille recently and I was there on the rooftop where the collective little kindergarten is there and it's a little pool and in the beautiful yoga hall, Le Corbusier's vision of something that was actually very driven by ideology and philosophy. And I felt, yes, this works and I could be here, I could move here, even though it's actually quite isolated in its own magnificence, I could probably make my life work there. <laughs> I've been there too, and I was thinking about that. But I think that is striving for a better 
society rather than utopia. I think that's what's important. And I agree with you about the city because I've always thought the pearl is made from the grit and the oyster. You know, perfection is not necessarily good. You need that grit to make the beauty of the pearl. And I think in everything, in design, in architecture, there is a sense that this idea of the collective, I think is very profound and something I'd love to (laughs) realise. But you're right, you know, we don't want to isolate ourselves. We're too much city girls here, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Julian Tobias and Marcella Palak. Confect Corner is produced by Colotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds and is edited by Christy O'Grady. You can reach us at audio at confectmagazine.com. We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.